Good morning. If you're going to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, thank you to Bruce and Pam, especially on short notice, filling in for music today. Um, today is the second Sunday of Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, and today we'll be talking about the theme of rest, which I realize is not typically a Christmassy theme. Really, the point of these sermons this month, looking at Christmas and Genesis, are looking at these various creation themes and how they ultimately point to Christ. But I was reflecting this morning, and I was thinking about um, the Christmas season itself and the fact that I'm talking about rest today because really with, with everything that goes on this time of year, with family stuff, with things with friends, Christmas parties, all the hustle and bustle of the season, especially the closer we get to actual Christmas Day, that in some ways this time that we say is the most wonderful time of the year can be a, a season that becomes exhausting if we're not careful. And I'm sure in various ways many of us have experienced that in the past. Um, and so it's important at Christmas time to obviously keep the main thing the main thing, that it's a time of year where we're celebrating the fact that Jesus came into the world but to also enjoy the other wonderful aspects that we associate with Christmas, time with friends and family, and that fellowship that we enjoy. Uh, so that's something I was reflecting on this morning. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, so a pretty short passage. Um, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God <clears throat> blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time of year, Lord, as a time to remember and reflect and prepare our hearts to celebrate the fact that your Son, Christ the Lord, has come into the world. Lord, into a sinful world, into a world of death, that he brought life and grace. And Lord, may we rejoice in that above all things. Lord, we want to continue to pray for Debbie Smith on the sudden loss of her husband a week and a half ago. Lord, we continue to lift her up as it is an incredibly difficult process to grieve. Lord, we continue to uh, we, we pray for people who are fighting illnesses. Lord, we want to lift up the Hall family. I want to pray for a speedy recovery for all of them. Uh, Lord, we want to pray for Les and for Donna Young, both of whom currently are dealing with health issues. Lord, we pray for this pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Lord, we pray for treatment. We pray for these appointments that she has coming up with doctors for, for good news, for good reports, for options. Lord, we want to pray for good health for her. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have today to be together and to worship you, to worship your great name, and to celebrate your great gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. The Day Without a President. March 4th, 1849 was set to be the inauguration day of Zachary Taylor as America's 12th president. But there was a problem. At the time, the Constitution mandated March 4th as Inauguration Day, 
But in 1849, that fell on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. And Taylor had made his plans known that he was going to wait to take the oath of office on Monday, the 5th. Taylor's predecessor was James K. Polk. At the time, the Constitution did not specify the hour of when a presidency ended. It does today, but not back then. It just said March 4th. So in the early morning hours of March 4th, Polk did some final presidential tasks, signed a couple of final bills into law, but by early afternoon, he had left the White House. Taylor still had not taken the oath of office. There was no sworn-in president or vice president. Eric Liddell was a Scottish track star who had grown up as a child of missionaries and who spent his own life serving as a missionary in China. He was the fastest man in the world, but his best event, the 100 meters, in the 1924 Olympics, there was a problem. The race was on a Sunday. Liddell would not participate. He would go on to win the gold in the 400, though. Throughout our nation's history, many states, counties, municipalities had various blue laws which limited or outright prohibited various transactions and activities on Sunday. Even today, numerous states still have laws regarding alcohol sales on Sundays. Several states, I learned this this week, including Illinois, do not allow car dealerships to be open on Sundays. Uh, numerous states have stricter or outright prohibitions on hunting on Sundays. Even for people who are not particularly religious, generations of Americans benefited, benefited from Sunday as a day off. In our town, there are still some places that are closed on Sundays, but as someone who's lived in Columbus, Ohio, and in the Chicago area, and in the St. Louis area, it's a rarity in cities. Famously, Chick-fil-A closes on Sundays, as does Hobby Lobby, the retail chain. But most of our society treats Sunday like it's any other day. From the beginning of the Bible, we see rest introduced as an important theme. It's part of creation. It would be one of the Ten Commandments. In Israel's history, their observance of the Sabbath would become a barometer for their overall spiritual health. During the ministry of Jesus, in all four Gospels, he's involved in various Sabbath controversies. And we see how Jesus would also be the one who would ultimately point to the true Sabbath and true rest. For the Jewish people, Sabbath observance was sacred and a way of life. And so, as I said a few moments ago in the beginning, we're continuing our Advent series, Christmas in Genesis. A couple notes before I get to the rest of the message as we talk about Sabbath and rest. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means rest. And so I basically use those two words interchangeably. Sabbath is rest. The main idea as we study Sabbath rest today is that Jesus gives rest to a restless world. And with that, we'll get into our passage. Last week, we looked at the six days of creation 
in Genesis 1. Chapter 2 begins with what I read a moment ago. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, God doesn't get tired. He never stops ruling and reigning over his creation. So what does it mean when it says God rests? Instead of thinking of that rest as an act of leisure, the rest here is more about a cessation from work. God's creation activity is complete, and so he rests from creation. God isn't kicking up his feet on some sort of recliner and watching football all day, but he is no longer creating. There is rest. The ESV uses the word that the heavens and the earth were finished. By finished, what it means is, to quote Victor Hamilton, the universe is no longer in the process of being created. The seventh day is also the only day of the seven which does not give us the refrain, there was evening and there was morning, as we saw on the six days of creation. And that's actually pretty interesting. You have this established pattern. You have the first mention of rest here. The weekly Sabbath would become something very, very culturally important, yet no mention of evening and morning. I'll try to revisit that here in a few moments. The text says that the Lord blessed the seventh day. Of the seven days, this is the only one that's blessed. As with all of the themes of creation, rest is introduced in Genesis, but that by itself doesn't give us the full biblical story. We see a continued expansion of the rest theme. Moving forward into the book of Exodus. In Exodus 16, the Israelites had recently, miraculously, been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're in pursuit of the promised land. They need food. And so the Lord miraculously provides manna, bread from heaven. But in Exodus 16, they will be commanded to rest from this work every seventh day. Exodus 16, 22 and 23. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. <coughs> bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. That is beginning to establish a future pattern of work and rest. Now, Consider that event from the perspective of the Israelites. They're all alone out in the desert, and they're told, you need to rest one day a week. Keeping the Sabbath is an act of faith, because it can be really tempting with all of the fear and anxieties of life and the world and our responsibilities to feel like, I don't have time. I can't. But we see that God provides. The Sabbath command will be restated four chapters later in the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. 
of the Ten Commandments, only the command to rest is given prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments. We come to that section, it's specifically the Fifth Commandment, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. One of the things that we see is that the Sabbath command within the Israelite community was universal. The entire community was to keep the Sabbath. Even servants, even livestock were not meant to work on the Sabbath. I don't know how you do that, but... The rationale for why the Sabbath command is given is in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Once again we see this emphasis that the Sabbath is blessed. And that's the biggest thing to keep in mind over all of this. That God gives the Sabbath as a blessing, not as some sort of punishment or chore. I remember reading in a, a book a few years ago talking about keeping the Sabbath well. And the person was talking about making it a, a day of your week that's special and set apart to, to enjoy God and family and just have it be something meaningful. And he's like, nobody forces you to celebrate Christmas like, oh, I have to celebrate Christmas today. But we can tend to treat a day of rest like that, like it's a punishment almost. It's not. It's a blessing from God. Now, at this point, I have to digress a little bit. Because so far, my point has been focusing on the weekly Sabbath, and that's important. But even back in the Old Testament, we already start to see this branching off with another idea of an ultimate rest, which is at a future time. That could easily be the subject of its own sermon, but I'm going to be brief on these points. In the Old Testament, this rest was tied to the promised land. It's connected to being in a blessed land that is safe from God's enemies and where the people of God are free to worship God. We see this theme introduced during the desert wanderings. Deuteronomy 12.9 You have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. We again see the promised land referred to in this way at the beginning of the book of Joshua. At the time, Moses has recently passed away and Joshua is the new leader as the Israelites are outside the promised land. Joshua 1.13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Later passages We'll talk of a lack of rest, which will be symbolic with the sin of Israel. Lamentations 1.3. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Lots of other places where we could look. 
One last passage before we move into the New Testament. And I would argue theologically, it's the most significant. At the end of Psalm 95, it's looking back at Israel's desert warning or wanderings. In particular, it's referring back to a series of events in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. In those chapters, the Israelites are just outside the promised land. They're on the edge of it. And they send these scouts to investigate the land. And they see it, and it's as good as advertised. But they also see the people who live in the land, and they're afraid. All these years that the Lord has provided, has sustained Israel, he has brought them to the edge of the promised land, but fear overcomes them. And so God pronounced a judgment on that first Exodus generation that they would not inherit the land. Their kids would. Numbers 14, verses 29 and 30. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. And so Psalm 95 looks back on this as an example. Verses 10 to 11. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the psalm ties withholding the promised land to withholding the divine rest that the Lord had promised because the people's faith had kept them from entering the land. Finally, we come to the New Testament. And once again, I would argue theologically the most important passage in the New Testament on rest is Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. In particular, Hebrews 4, the author is using the language both of Numbers 14 and Psalm 95. Hebrews 4 verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, that's referring to the Exodus generation, but the message they heard did not benefit them because ultimately they responded faithlessly and then entered the land because they were, they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing there is he's drawing two different distinctions between the Exodus generation and the New Covenant. And he's saying that both have this promise of divine rest. And the first generation had failed. We can't repeat that mistake. Verse 3, he quotes Psalm 95. For we who have believed enter the rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so again, he's taking all of these ideas and passages together where he's quoting from Psalm 95, looking at a divine judgment where they would not enter God's rest because of their unbelief. And he's saying that for the church to enter the true rest is done by virtue of faith and what Christ has accomplished. 
linking these ideas of belief and rest. There's a lot more that could be said. But I'll move to the latter part of the section, Hebrews 4.10. Excuse me, Hebrews 4.9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Again, the talk of rest here is not about a weekly Sabbath. It's referring to an eternal Sabbath, the true rest that is given by Jesus. As the Exodus generation pursued the promised land under Moses, Jesus is a new Moses who leads his people to God. And the true Sabbath is kept by virtue of faith in Christ, the one who brings true rest. Verse 10, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This verse seems most likely to point to the final rest from our efforts when we are eternally in the presence of Christ, that that is the true rest that we look forward to as the Israelite generation looked forward to the promised land. They were unable to enter because of a lack of faith. We enter it because of faith in Christ. We have rest from trying to earn God Rest from trying to act like we can live up, because we can't. It's resting in the grace of Christ and in his works and what he has achieved. The most significant teaching from Jesus on the subject of rest, and I don't have time this morning to get into the various Sabbath controversies. Again, he has a lot of conflicts with the Pharisees in the Gospels over the Sabbath. Healings he does on the Sabbath that they don't think technically qualify as being uh, permissible. It's a constant source of conflict. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we see there Jesus inviting us into the rest that he provides. And so really that's kind of a short theology of rest. True rest and true Sabbath are accomplished by Christ. And the true Sabbath is kept by virtue of having faith in the one who has fulfilled the law, including having fulfilled the Sabbath requirements perfectly. Now, let's switch gears and talk about Christianity and our own weekly practice of rest. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was on the seventh day. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week, Sunday. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And the New Testament... We see some examples of Sunday becoming <clears throat> the day for worship in the early church. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, notice so it says, on the first day of the week. And then it talks about them basically gathering for church, breaking of bread, communion. It says, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Sounds like a good church day to me. 
Rest can still be as much of a challenge in the modern day as it was for the Israelites in the Exodus generation. Some people get too much rest. That's not good either. That's just called being lazy. But I would argue that in a small town, for most of us, that's probably not really the struggle. If anything, we might struggle with being at the opposite end of that spectrum and working too hard. And even when I say working too hard, some of you might think, that's crazy talk. Do you find time to rest? If not, that's working too hard. And I say this as somebody who's really not a great rester. You know, here, I mean, we've got that German work ethic, and that's a great thing. Strong work ethic is absolutely a virtue. But with any virtue, you can take it too far and make it a master. Sinful people are good at that. There are different reasons why we might struggle with rest. But I'm going to just focus on one for today. We don't feel like we know how. And again, this isn't true for everybody, I'm sure. But some of us work so hard and have such strong patterns of work that that becomes all we know. And resting becomes almost a foreign concept to truly take one day in seven and rest. It seems like it should be simple. It's given by God as a blessing, something that should obviously be a good thing. And yet, so many of us struggle to do it. Rest does not make you lazy when God ordained it and created it. So I close with just a few thoughts on resting well. Rest, above everything else, is about time with God. On Sunday, we come together to worship, to praise, to pray, to sing to God, to hear from God's word. God gave us this day to keep it holy, and that involves time with God. But Sunday is not a 24-hour church service for a reason, because there are also other aspects of what is restful on the Lord's day. Now, coming together and worshiping is an essential part of that rest. Some of these things can vary from person to person. But what are the things that refresh you? That can be different for different people. And I think those things have their place when we're trying to find rest. For some people, that might be spending a couple hours in a garden. For me, that would sound absolutely miserable, but some people like it. For some people, it might be taking time to read a book or play a game. Restful activity is valuable. The things that replenish and recharge you. Fellowship with other people is important. Enjoying a meal with friends or family. And at the opposite end of that spectrum, there's also a place for solitude, for being alone when we're resting. There's a lot of value in enjoying the beauty of nature and God's creation. And again, those are just some brief thoughts. And I'm not saying that a person needs to check off all of those things for it to count as a day of rest, but to thoughtfully practice a Sabbath, which is meant to be worshipful and restful, to worship the Lord, but to also, in that day, feeling refreshed 
and replenished and ready for the next six days. And remembering that we have a Savior who has come into the world and who brings the greater and ultimate rest which we will eternally enjoy in the presence of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us rest, that it is something that is a good gift to humanity. And so, Lord, may we not be people who are overburdened and stressed, (coughs) but may we come to you in joy and restfulness. And Lord, the rest of this day, may it be something for all of us that we can utilize to be replenished. In Jesus' name, amen.